Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the February 6th edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. Hey, it's uh, Ronald Reagan's birthday and my little brother's. Hey, Glenn. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org, and you can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an, he's an economist, an author, the host of the Capital Record podcast, and the founder of the eponymous investment firm, The Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. How are you, my friend? Other than struggling over an intro I've now done 263 times, you'd think. It only um, gets better from here. I can't get any worse. Hey, uh, there is so much to talk about. Can I start with something that is almost, it's sort of historical, but just a, an odd postcard from Jay Nordlinger. Did you see this in the show notes? I did see in the show notes. Jay wrote this wonderful piece, and I don't, I have to dig a little deeper to find out whether this is just part of a thing he does where he travels around. In this case, he stopped off in Yermo, California. For those of us who travel to Vegas from this part of the state, Southern California, Yermo is about halfway between here and Vegas. And it's notable because Peggy Sue's Diner is there. But Jay stopped there because of the Liberty Sculpture Park. And he writes about this in National Review in a, uh, in a piece he calls Statues of Liberty. And it's just it made me want to head back out there, not because I'm on my way to Vegas. Like a truly wonderful piece about a group of Chinese artists who have gathered in the Mojave Desert uh, just outside of Barstow, for those uh, who know where Barstow is. And um, he's built this amazing park that recollects the uh, the outrages of Chinese communism, uh, has a statue of Xi Jinping uh, looking more like a cancer or a skeleton, something like that. Uh, the tank man, the man who famously at Tiananmen Square is standing, you know, he's dressed like he's going to an office carrying a briefcase, stopped in front of a uh, tank. Um, just sounds like a wonderful place to go, and I won't do anybody the give anybody the burden of actually having me read what he has found out there, Jay, that is. But uh, put in the show notes and make this a visit. Uh, make this a point on your uh, tour of Southern California if you get the moment. Uh, in other news, David, you wanted to talk about a great piece in the New York Times. Kamala Harris is trying to define her vice presidency, even as her allies tire of waiting. Um, I can tell you what I found fascinating about it, and that is, you know, here's the New York Times, the arch, arch defenders of the, the Biden administration and opponent of all things uh, sort of crystal clear to us. But um, I, I'm intrigued by just sort of the catalog of uh, – it's, it's an update on how poorly Kamala is doing even – among Democratic insiders, and unlike many pieces in the past, this one names names. Uh, major Democratic fundraisers, uh, uh, I mean, people who are, you know, people, most of our listeners, I'm sure, will un will, will, will know. Um, but it starts off with this uh, piece that's sort of pathetic. Like, you know, all the great stories start off with an anecdote. That's what we call it in the business, an anecdotal opening. And in this one, uh, the vice president is on Air Force Two on its way to the Midwest over the summer. And she's holding a, says she brandished a Rolling Stone magazine article about the backlash against Florida school officials after new legislation barring the discussion, discussion of gender identity in classrooms. She demanded a rewrite. And gosh, by the time she landed, she had a more spirited version of, the, of her speech in hand, accusing a extremist so-called leaders in the Republican Party of taking away rights and freedoms. But it goes on from there, David, to talk at length about just her absolute failure to inspire anybody. And in fact, quite the opposite, they're inspiring her toward terror. If Biden actually runs, how do they edge this person off the ticket and at the, and at the same time not uh, just infuriate folks who are really into the identity politics. A woman of color, the first woman of color ever a VP, the first woman, the first person of color as a VP. This is huge. Um, so uh, I, I think what the story shows, shows more than anything is how California elevates to positions of power people who are woefully woefully unprepared for the job. And that's how Kamala rose through the ranks. She was just sort of biding her time. And then the Me Too movement kicks in and she's running for president all of a sudden. A person who has almost no experience in retail politics is totally incompetent. You've waited very patiently. I can go on. Well, when you say no experience in retail politics, you don't think there's statewide races that she ran and won were retail? No, I, because it was more of the sort of thing that she knows how to do, which is 
get propped up alongside people who will endorse her, you know, locally. And the few times that she engages anything approaching retail, it's not really like going out and knocking on doors. I'm talking about like the very basics of how you run a campaign. And her incompetence was never an obstacle to her. She just rose through the ranks, had the right identity metrics, and so was elevated here or there, first, of course, famously by Willie Brown, and then ultimately, you know, thereafter, it was just the progressives getting behind her, and then not behind her, because they hated her politics on weed, for example. Um, She was just... I mean, she's just, you read this thing and you've got people who say, oh, the only reason they're attacking her is because she's a woman of color. But that's clearly not the case here. They're attacking her because she's unprepared to take on serious policy or political issues and has revealed this time and again. And they rightly look back at the 2020 campaign and realize this woman got blown out very early on. And if she's on the ticket, she could be a serious drag on Biden. See, I, I think that her getting blown out in that primary produces a validation or a verification of the thesis. But it isn't the case for the thesis. Like, we don't think she can win because she didn't win in 2020 mm-hmm. primary. It's more, we don't think she can win because of this, this, and this deficiency. And it turns out, it looks like we were right because of how the primary went. But then one could argue, well, then why why was she named the VP? And that's the interesting thing because, of course, um, Biden ran for president and got like 1% and then got named Obama's VP. And Kamala, similar thing. I think she dropped out even before Iowa and then less than 1% and then got named uh, Biden's VP. Uh, Obama had picked Biden as a failing candidate. Biden picked Kamala. I don't think there's a rule book on why people end up picking VPs. Mm -hmm. I do think it's idiosyncratic and that sometimes a very uh, competitive VP race like Reagan with Bush Sr. ends up becoming a natural VP selection. And other times it doesn't. Now, let's see. When Kerry picked Edwards, Edwards was not his competitive opponent it was really more um howard dean Hmm. right um it's usually picked for other electoral considerations Mm -hmm, that can mm -hmm, be right or wrong mm -hmm. but what was going on when biden picked kamala uh identity politics fever pitch yeah we're talking about the summer of 2020 especially uh you know and she's already on the ticket by then if i'm not mistaken or at least headed toward it right i'm trying to remember my my chronology here of when the republican uh, convention was but she was certainly had the inside track and then you've got the george floyd murder in the summer of 2020 and i think all the smart money is on oh that's right and biden comes out how soon we forget biden comes out and says i'm definitely going to pl- pick a black woman and so the the sort of the, the, the we're off to the racist uh, races. Uh, we're going to find a woman who is a woman of color and we're definitely going to elevate that person. And there were other, I'm, I'm blanking on all the other candidates. People were talking about like maybe Tulsi Gabbard and, uh, and I'm blanking completely. This well, is like as ancient far, history. as far as Biden's candidates? Yeah. Oh, I think that the, that he was always going to pick a female. I think yes. he said to begin with, and it was always going to be one uh, of color and, Tulsi was never going to no. be that. So um, I think it was really always Susan Rye. Oh, they yeah. had that, that um, was it Corey Bush? They had somebody up in LA. It was like uh, uh, becoming a little more high profile. Shirley Weber? Or maybe. There was, there was yeah. a person who just didn't have much of a resume or right, national right, right. name. And I think that the, everything I've heard, including from people I, I trust a great deal, was that they were being pushed heavily by the Obamas to pick Susan Rice. Mm-hmm. And that they didn't, and that has a lot to do with why there's a lot of bad blood between a lot on Team Obama and Team Biden. And you know my theory is that all of this stuff on the documents is coming from the Obamas, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think that um, that Biden is going to continually get hit from uh, an opponent he can't see whose body the fist belongs to. Kamala knows darn well where the fist belongs to, and it's pretty much everybody, the Democratic establishment. It's the Bidens, it's the Obamas, it's the donors, it's everybody. And it does come down to the selection 2020. She was not picked. It's not a surprise that she can't go carry the ticket. They knew it. And it's the risk you take sometimes on the VP pick. Um, I don't think very many presidents say, look, I plan to win this race, and I plan to win re-election, and I really got to think about how the reelection stuff will go in eight years from now. 
Um, I think people just think in the short term about what they think is going to make the most sense at that time. And I remember a lot of people were critical of George W. Bush picking Dick Cheney, saying, you know, you're, he can't run to be president eight years. What are, you, what are you doing? And first of all, in hindsight, it's kind of funny because he probably could have because now mm-hmm. we just run 80-year-olds like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. But um, I, it, once upon a time, there were people that thought that VP was important to be president. Like, what if what if I die? Right. And and I think Bush relied heavily in an administrative capacity on, on Vice President Cheney. Kamal Harris is not going to be the VP in uh, 2025. That's I'm going to say that right now. It's not going to happen. You don't think so? I don't. Wow. So uh, does he? Who who does he pick? He, Maybe he runs there again. But they, but if he does, they won't win. Got it. Um, just a really good story. I mean, I guess you could say he does pick. First of all, there's four things then that I have to be wrong about, and I could be wrong on all four. But think about this. I don't think he's running. You you I do not stop seriously. I do not think he's running. Wow. And I don't think he'll be the the nominee. So like he could say he's in a run, and then all of a sudden the doctor says he can't run or mm. whatever. But what I mean is he won't ultimately be the one running. And I don't think she'll be the VP candidate. And the only thing that's I get, if he does so run. So if he runs and he picks her and Trump gets the nomination, then I guess she could still be VP in 25 because mm-hmm. I do think Biden would beat Trump. Mm-hmm. I think everybody thinks that. Yeah. You said there were four things. That's three, right? Or is that the fourth? Biden running, picking Kamala, Trump getting the nomination, then Biden picking Trump. Got it. Uh, beating Beating Trump. Trump. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I did not quote any of the great quotes in here from lots and lots of donors who tell us like, yeah, this is just a real problem. Um, Those close to Ms. Harris hope she can move beyond defensive politics, said Douglas Brinkley, a presidential historian, organized a meeting at her residence about the legacy of the VP and will attend another session with her this week. Quote, President Biden has to give her more leeway to be herself and not make her overly cautious, so overly cautious that a mistake, a rhetorical mistake will cost the party a lot. It's better to let Kamala be Kamala. Yeah, I think conservatives would agree with that, too. Yeah. Uh, In other news, uh, we talked a little bit about Katie Porter announcing precipitously that she was going to run or precociously that she was going to run for Dianne Feinstein's uh, Senate seat. And of course, Dianne has not yet, I'm sorry, the senator has not yet uh, uh, resigned from the seat or announced that she won't run again. Uh, She's 90 and uh, seems highly unlikely she'll run again. Uh, There's some signs there, and I do not mean this to besmirch her personally, but um, some signs of cognitive decline there that one might expect in a 90-year-old, not all 90-year-olds, but certainly this one. So anyway, uh, Katie Porter comes out, uh, gosh, almost a month ago now and says she's going to run for U.S. Senate. And right behind her comes this week Adam Schiff, uh, who is uh, now not only announced that he's running, but has immediately the backing of Nancy Pelosi and others. Uh, Any uh, horse race figuring there? I, I no well Pelosi has to back Schiff, but I guess I part of me does wonder if she knows that Roe Khan is not going to get in the race. One wonders because he's the other guy who he hasn't announced yet, and he's the guy you and I have said some kind things about. Uh, well, we he's got, the guy I think would win. He's yes, he is smart. He has the progressive bona fides. Uh, he's not Katie Porter, who is an unlikable person personally, but a huge fundraiser. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know about Ro Khanna, but, uh, certainly you, you, Schiff now looks like the guy to be, right? I guess. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it because Schiff and Katie both seem so unlikable to me. It's just hard for me to believe. And maybe I'm just, you know, well, we know I'm not exactly their target market, but, um, I don't think either one of them are much of a name out, outside their own district. Schiff does just from Trump stuff, but that's not all positive. No. Um, Rokan is the guy who would be very formidable there. Yeah, I think. Um, By the way, they're all going to win. One, it's going to be jungle primary, Democrat on Democrat. That's right. So all we're talking about who's going to win. That's right. Does Schiff beat Katie if it's one on one? Boy, I don't know. I, I guess with is Liz Warren and and the kind of the feminist establishment and famous East Coast Democrats coming out to campaign for Katie? Does that overcome her deficits? Does Schiff have in Pelosi? I think you go with your instinct here versus the fame, because remember when the Clintons backed Sanche- Loretta Sanchez, and that was against Kamala. Yeah, I think you're right. And it didn't even move the needle. Right, right. So sometimes it was national. I, I brought up like, oh, Liz Warren isn't going to help Katie, but I think fundraising and stuff probably mm-hmm. does. 
Yeah. Well, this will be fun because it will be, as you say, in the jungle primary, it'll be a Democrat on a Democrat. If that's uh, Katie Porter versus Adam Schiff, we're going to have accusations of anti-Semitism. That'll be fun. Uh, white male politics uh, versus feminist politics, uh, somebody who's more progressive than the other. I would like to see Katie Porter bring up the failings of uh, Adam Schiff's management of the impeachment, uh, his not just doubling, but tripling and quadrupling down on the now debunked uh, Russian Facebook stuff uh, versus Trump. So uh, this could this could be a load of fun, man. Uh, all right. So um, let's jump down, David, to I'm, I'm just running through here some uh, kind of lightning round updates uh, that, you know, stuff that we've talked a little bit about that we can move through fairly quickly. And then we'll settle into some bigger stories coming up here. But next up on the updates is uh, California will no longer require COVID vaccine for kids attending schools. Uh, this is uh, we're now approaching the deadline which Newsom set for himself, as most emperors do uh, in setting their own limits. He announced that by the end of February, that we're in February now, just uh, for those who aren't paying attention. So this month, later this month, Newsom has promised that he will end his uh, COVID emergency authority. And uh, part of what has immediately come crumbling down is the COVID childhood vaccine, something that should never have happened. Just travel back with us to the dawn of the COVID uh, pandemic. And we've been saying this since the beginning, David, that kids aren't the ones at risk. Thank goodness. Uh, nevertheless, the teachers union banged the drum for disaster, disaster, disaster and, ref and said they would not allow teachers to go back and infect students or have students infecting one another. So they closed the schools, the longest in the nation, the, the longest closure in the nation of public schools, and then demanded that kids, again, who are not the, at greatest risk of COVID, they, they demanded that kids get this vaccine. And that prompted even very very liberal parents who are skeptical of vaccines and over vaccinating their children that that provoked a real backlash. And so you've got, uh, you know, I, I, I myself was asked by a number of parents, including some Democrats, like, hey, you're involved in politics. How can I get around this vaccine? Can somebody fabricate a, vac a proof of vaccine for my kid? Uh, so I think this is the Democrats in who control Sacramento really sort of taking a look around the state and saying, like, uh, it's not good for Newsom to have the pandemic still raging when nobody else is suggesting it is, except for maybe, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a few outliers in the public health department. But they've, they've actually just, I think, taken this out, and I, I, this vaccine requirement out, David. And I wonder, you know, is this just sort of like a non-story? Like, of course, they were going to do this quietly on a Friday and just sort of announce no more vaccines for kids? Well, I, yeah. Don't you think? I do. Um, I do it, think that. Yeah, I think they're just trying to avoid a bloodbath politically. Um, and not because they've changed on, on their convictions on it or anything, just... Uh, they recognize unwinnable fights at this point. The politics and all this stuff has changed so much. Yeah. Uh, in another story, we have talked a lot about AB 257, just for everybody else's uh, memory. Uh, that's the bill passed, uh, signed by Newsom this past year that would put the government in the position, the state government in the position of representing workers in the fast food industry. Why would the government do that in California? Why do fast food workers need the government's representation? Why not just a union? Because the unions have failed for decades to organize fast food workers, and their failure to be able to do that has nothing to do with fast food industry megaliths, uh, monoliths, uh, hegemons stomping around and refusing to allow their people to organize this because the fast food industry is famous or infamous if you're a union organizer. It's famous for being an escalator, a place where young people and others who are recent immigrants perhaps come into this country, find their footing in a place like a fast food restaurant, rise up through the ranks and get other jobs outside the industry or rise up to the level of managers and supervisors in these franchises and in some cases actually becoming owners of fast food enterprises themselves. It is a very fluid, very fast-paced kind of industry, not just on the shop floor, but in terms of being an economic escalator. So the government bowed, the state legislature bowed to the, the people who brought them to the legislature, government unions and others, who really want to see these people organized and so demanded that the government do that for them. Here's a story that we'll, we'll put up. It's a, just a commentary piece from the president of McDonald's, whose name is, oh my God, now I'm blanking. Where is he here? His name at McDonald's, and I believe it's the CEO, Joe, by the way, but it's Joe Erlinger. Erlinger. It says here president of McDonald's USA. Um, okay, you're, you're right. He's president of the USA division. I'm sorry. Yeah. The headline is California keeps looking for ways to raise prices, drive away more businesses, and destroy growth through bad policy and bad politics. Couldn't have written a better headline. Sounds like he's been listening to our show. 
but I just think this is a simple and observable fact that people all over the world probably get what's going on here, uh, except those who keep uh, supporting Newsom and the supermajority in the legislature. He writes, um, uh, the, the president of McDonald's, Mr. Erlinger does, he writes, no evidence exists to conclude that this law will better serve workers' needs. That's not just my opinion, but also the conclusion from the state's own experts. California's Department of Finance said, quote, it's not clear this bill will accomplish its goal. The Department of Industrial Relations debunked a core argument of the FAST Act. That's the the bill that was AB257's name. Uh, core argument of the FAST Act that claimed wage theft was disproportionately high in quick service restaurants. In fact, DIR said wage theft is up to five times lower at quick, quick service restaurants than in other industries. And in fact, the whole thing about wage theft and harassment and injuries we now know was produced by a debunked UCLA research paper that was done in conjunction with the Service Employees International Union, which was backing the bill. Shame on you, UCLA. Go Trojans. Fight on. Yep. Um, so let's get into some housing issues here, David. The, there were a couple of big headlines that I want to get to, and uh, I'm really eager for your uh, enthusiastic response on this, David. Here's the first headline. This is from the LA Times. Civil rights groups file lawsuit to block Newsom's plan for treating people with mental illness. So we have a homeless crisis in California. About two-thirds of the people who are on the streets are there, because, at least in part because of mental illness and or drug addiction. And so Gavin Newsom came up with a plan that you and I both thought was actually sort of reasonable. Like it, it moved towards something that would undo the fiasco, which is getting people who are mentally ill off the streets. And uh, so Newsom was setting up a um, what he called the care court. And uh, the, the way this goes is, let me see if I can find the exact quote here from the Newsom team. The new law will allow family members, first responders, medical professionals, and behavioral health providers, among others, to petition a judge to order an evaluation of an adult with a diagnosed psychotic disorder. If a person, this is not, in other words, just your simple neurosis or ADD. This is psychotic. If a person qualifies, a care plan could include medication and treatment services and housing if needed. Then it goes on, the LA Times story does, to say Newsom has been careful to distinguish care courts from more restrictive conservatorships because those who qualify could still technically refuse to participate. So this is not mandatory. Um, It is court recommended, court referred, but it is not mandatory. And yet what we have here is a group of people who claim to be uh, disability advocates like Disability Rights California, the Western Center on Law and Poverty, and the Public Interest Law Project have asked the state Supreme Court to strike down as unconstitutional the program known as care courts. The groups argue the sweeping new system will violate due process and equal protection rights under the Constitution while, quote, needlessly burdening fundamental rights to privacy, autonomy, and liberty, to which... Um, the Newsom administration says, uh, this is bad. Uh, what you're actually going to do is make life worse for these people. Uh, individuals with severe untreated mental health and substance use disorders will continue to suffer in our alleyways, in our criminal justice system, or worse, face death, said a Newsom spokesperson. Mm. So what would you like to say about this, Will? Well, it's just it just shows how far powerful incumbent special interest groups who need direct mail fundraising appeal literature will go to deprive people on the streets of actual care by claiming a civil rights uh, a civil rights injury. The fact is, you and I have friends who work in, um, you know, I'm thinking of our friend Jim Palmer, who runs the Orange County Rescue Mission. I used to work with the Catholic worker. Uh, I do not speak for the Catholic worker ever, uh, and certainly not now. But uh, having worked there, I can tell you that our biggest challenge was just that people were mentally ill and uh, did not want help in part because they were mentally ill. And there was no one who could step in and help these people get the help they need, but which they can't provide for themselves. And so they would, as as the Newsom spokesperson said, suffer. So we've got a challenge in California, so many challenges to the homeless crisis that are all self-inflicted, whether it's the high cost of housing, which we're going to come to in just a second, or it's uh, the Ninth Circuit determining that you can't get somebody off the street and into you can't order someone off the street or to stop public camping unless you offer them a place to stay. And of course, giving somebody who's mentally ill a place to stay is problematic in itself because their problem is they don't have a home. Their problem so is they're mentally ill. So are you on the side of the petitioners? 
the petitioners in this case, the disability people? Yeah. No, not at all. I am dramatically opposed to them. Of course. So here's the thing. Why do you think Newsom, from his wrong presuppositions on this whole matter, is in this case doing the right thing? Because I think he recognizes there are people who are so ill that they cannot help themselves. Yeah. I think it's the severity of it. Yes. That even like Newsom, who most of us uh, don't care for and don't, uh, and most of our listeners are not fans of, um, I think that he looks at it empirically at this point and says like, okay, we got to do something on that. Yeah. And then these people blocking it are just utterly shameful. Well, I, I think this goes Self-interested. Back, yeah. I think this goes back to a theme, you know, with regard to Newsom, this goes back to a theme we've followed for years now with, well, at least for a year with Newsom. And that is he aspires to the White House. Our conversation about Kamala and Biden and all that sort of thing, every, it's no secret Biden, I'm sorry, that uh, Newsom aspires to higher office, maybe now, maybe in a little while. But he wants the White House. And to do that, he has to achieve a more – he has to build for himself a more moderate reputation than the one he has because as soon as he runs against anybody else, certainly a conservative – See, the Democrats have an advantage – I'm sorry to interrupt you. No. The Republican classic framing is you got to run – to the right of what you really are, which I disagree with the language, you got to run crazier than you are <laughs> to get the nomination, and then you got to run to the middle to get the general. And with the Democrats, you could argue that we ran into that a little bit in 2020 um, at the beginning where they thought, okay, I'm a Julian Castro, and I'm a pretty reasonable, intelligent, capable, center-left Hispanic congressman, and I got to come out talking about abortion rights for men in prison Mm. right out the gate to get the nomination. So they thought they all had to out-wokey-woke each other. Mm -hmm. And Bader works like, you're darn right, we're taking your guns, and there's all this. But see, what happened was it was not a pivot to the middle to win the general. It was a pivot to the middle to save the election that they said we're not going to win with Bernie and Liz and let's get Biden in there. And then they all immediately got in line from Pete Buttigieg to uh, Klobuchar, right? The Republicans don't do that. They don't do that. So I don't believe that Gavin has to wait till the general to pivot. I think that they are looking at it as an electability argument mm-hmm. in the primary, mm-hmm. which in other words, Republicans, they're thinking about it the way we should be thinking mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Nominate who you think you can win. That's right. Okay? Yes. Don't get the guy who you nominate to be in a position to win, which we don't always do that real well either. I don't know if you noticed the debate <laughs> in September 2020. <laughs> I remember. I think the way to win the election in the middle of COVID is to go uh, call him names all night. Yes. And throw a temper tantrum like a preschooler. No, I think that Gavin is pretty savvy on this, but I also don't know if this is totally political, this homeless thing here. This could be him just saying, like, these people need to get... You you might be right, I, and, and I think reasonable people could disagree. We're both speculating, but my own sense is that Gavin Newsom would not make such a huge deal out of this if, in fact, homelessness weren't tracking very high in polling as a problem for him, even though he's wildly popular in California. For Democrats. For Democrats, yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, but the Democrats have to – this is a little bit like when I hear um, you know uh, Republicans and uh, Katie Porter sitting back and watching the uh, struggle for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and saying, like, oh, no, Nancy Pelosi famously said as well, like, no, no, this is a problem Republicans have to solve themselves. Hey, Democrats, if you love Gavin Newsom, these are problems you have to settle for yourselves. How do we handle the homeless? We've tried throwing billions and billions of dollars at this problem. Uh, but we are unable to make any movement at all because of people in the pro- on the progressive left. Yeah. Um, so this uh, th- there's there's a related story here, and that is that um, every eight years, uh, depending on which region of the state you live in, but it's every eight years for every region, no matter where you live, uh, the state government requires a an update to your city or county housing element. So let me let me back up just a minute and say that the county the state is divided up into regions like down here we have the Southern California area governments. Is the this un- the register story? Yeah, okay, uh, yeah. Well, actually I'm looking at the LA Times and I'm going to get to uh, Okay, I got you. I got yeah. you. So mm-hmm. um 
So down here in Southern California, we've got uh, Southern California area governments, uh, the unfortunately acronymed, uh, acronymic SCAG. Uh, there's one in the Bay Area as well. And these, oh, these are regional kind of partnerships or networking groups uh, that are official. They have a kind of quasi-official role in state government. And last year, the Southern California area governments, that, their eight years was up. And last year, you had cities running around and trying desperately, local city officials and county officials in Southern California, trying to put together an updated housing element that met with Gavin Newsom's demand that you better build more housing. Because another problem for homelessness uh, that, that exacerbates the problem we just discussed is the high cost of housing. And that affects everybody. You know, you don't have to be mentally ill in California to find the cost of housing here just absolutely outrageous. Outrageous. You got to be mentally ill to not find it. <laughs> oh, you see what I did there? I did. That was good. Thank you. Um, and you notice I wasn't drinking my coffee because I saw your face beam. Yeah. You, you, that's your tell. You get very bright. You can always tell what I think I'm about to say something funny. Uh, and it usually is. So, uh, so last year, the Southern California area governments, they got together with their northern partners and said, hey, look, this year we're in the hot seat. You know, we're on the dunk tank. Uh, this is coming your way next year, that is in 2022-23, and you're going to have to come up with your own housing elements that ram new housing into already perhaps dense cities or suburban communities that aren't really built for higher densities at this point. So you had all these Southern California local officials reaching out to their their colleagues, their counterparts rather, up in, in the Bay Area and said, you're going to hit this thing and we need your help now to push back on Newsom and the state legislature because they're demanding that we add in some cases like 10, 20, 30 percent of our housing to what we've already got. We've got to add like 30 percent new housing and it has to all be affordable. So the Bay Area folks said, oh, screw you, Southern Californians. You just won't cooperate with Newsom. You just you're all a bunch of retrograde right wing kooks and you won't support uh, you won't support the governor. And this is the only way to reduce housing is to produce more of it in all of our cities and suburbs suck. And Southern California is terrible. Well, California's SCAG gets their housing elements in on time, and it's it's pretty it's pretty terrible. You can look around Southern California; you can see these places. Like, I'll just take one example: Newport Beach has I don't know. I think our friend Will O'Neill, who was mayor there, still in city council, told me there's about forty forty five thousand housing units. That means apartments, condos, mm -hmm. and you know mansions. Um, but the state forty five thousand keys. 45,000 keys. Well, that's a nice way to put it. Thank you. Uh, so 45,000 keys. And, the, what, and Newsom's requirement, the state requirement is- you By gotta, the way, please um, don't write in if you and your wife both have a key. That, <laughs> we're just talking about one key. Okay? <laughs> just- <laughs> <laughs> Send those letters to David. So, uh, but Newport Beach. Well, what about the back door? Uh, yeah, there you go. And how about the garage door <laughs> yeah, opener yeah. and our kids? So, ten percent in Newport Beach is what the state required, and it has to almost all be affordable, right? In Newport Beach, so that's ten percent is about forty five hundred, almost five thousand new homes, new keys, and uh, and where are they going to put these? There's not a whole lot of open space, so they're talking about like, gosh, do we create high rises and low income stuff, and how do we do this? And this is the case in virtually every city, every county in Southern California. They had to go through this mess. Now the Bay Area is in the hot seat, and they are flaming mad. They are caught. And it the, the best example of this, David, well, there's two. Steph Curry, famously of NBA's— uh, they, uh, Golden State Warriors. Golden State Warriors. Thank Where do you go to college? I have no idea. That's embarrassing. I don't pay attention to the NBA. Brian, don't it. say Brian, do you know where he went to college? Davidson College. Never heard of it. Where's That's right. And he had a huge NCAA tournament, the greatest sporting event in the entire world. March Madness. March Madness. Yeah. And then kind of made a name as uh, that tournament got drafted and now has become arguably one of the best players of all time. Certainly best three-point shooter of all time, et cetera. Yeah. Steph Curry, Davidson College. Where is Davidson College? I'm going to say Virginia, but now I may be wrong. Hold on. And of course, his dad played the, in his the dad NBA. Played. That's Steph, right. Um, Seth Curry. That's, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, hold on, where did... Um... I know his dad played. No, 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 Del Curry's the dad. Seth Curry is Steph's brother. His brother, okay. okay. where is Davidson College? Hold on. Let's. Uh, this... this is a job for Brian. Well, yeah, but it's in North Carolina. North Carolina, Which okay. is not exactly a uh, 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 basketball, a college basketball nobody between Duke mm -hmm. and University of North Carolina, right, right. NC State, Wake Forest. You could right. argue North Carolina, along with Indiana, historically, 
These are the great states in yeah. our country for basketball. And he ends up in California buying a home ultimately in Atherton and befitting his his uh, status in the NBA. He buys a mansion, sells it, buys a bigger mansion in Atherton. It's worth well, He has about- a $30 million home. Right. Uh, it's it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, there there are pictures in this one of the stories that I'll post. They had on concerns the about privacy and safety. Yeah. So Atherton is a city in the Bay Area that is now required to come up with its own housing element, and therefore has decided they're going to build low income housing throughout the city, or at least moderately priced housing. In the case of Steph Curry's neighborhood, it's low income, and it's right behind the back wall of Steph's mansion. So Steph says, you know, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I've always been for low-income housing. I've always been for programs of the left. I've always been for more government. But this is too much. This is my neighborhood. And he even sort of acknowledges, uh, I wonder if he had some political help in writing his letter to the city of Atherton, begging them to reconsider their element. Well, he maybe did. It wouldn't have been political help. It would have been PR help because he didn't want to walk into exactly what you're doing to him right now. Yeah. So but see, I don't know that he's wrong. I don't think he's and wrong. I'm the biggest anti-NIMBY guy who's ever been on the podcast. You're an anti-NIMBY. Yes. However, it is true that they may say there's this neighborhood in Atherton we want to go to. And in principle, I don't think rich people in mansions should be able to have precedence over what they're going to do and uh, relative to other locations. But I will say this. They never seem to do it near faculty lounges. Okay, so all I'm saying without being the one responsible for various options is it takes more. This to me is he's walking into a trap. Yes. Because he's he walked into exactly what we're doing to him right now, what the LA Times did to him, is look at this rich, privileged guy saying he doesn't want a homeless shelter next to him. And I say, okay, well, let's go to a less rich guy, a tenured professor at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put it in their in backyard. Right. Do you think they're going to be cool? No, I do not think they're going to be cool. So this is you're, you've got it exactly right. Um, here's the story from the L.A. Times, and I think this is uh, my friend Howard Bloom. It is indeed, who usually writes about education, but for some reason picked up the Steph Curry. Maybe he's a basketball fan. I didn't know it. I know that he's a clogger. For those of you out there who know clogging, add that to your bingo card. Um, but the, he, this is Howard Bloom writing. He says, the Currys are far from the only, the richest, or the angriest objectors. Those directing flack towards city officials include, David, you'll love this, billionaire venture capitalist Mark, Mark Andreessen. Who, by the way, is a very reasonable guy. Has been pushing forever for an increase in the supply of housing in California. But, but see, I don't think he's saying because I don't want it here. I think he's pointing out that the land is too expensive. Well, what he said, though, in his letter to the city of Atherton was roughly what what Steph Curry said was, not in my backyard, please, not here. Um, this other letter said it's not economically feasible. This is not from either Curry or Andreessen. It's from a no-namer named Joseph Laria. But the land alone is $8 million per acre. Right. I mean, that doesn't seem like the most efficient place to put homeless shelter. No, it's not. You and I would agree on all of these objections to putting- uh, You just want to call it their hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy. because, right. and, and I'm going to say- right, so like, let's write this down. Everyone get a pen. A lot of rich liberals are hypocrites. Boom. Okay. Should I just move on? The Upper West Side in New York is where this thing came to a crescendo during post-COVID when they took over the hotels that had nothing going on because the whole world was shut down and de Blasio was making them take uh, homeless. And then all of a sudden you had 20,000 people on a Facebook group that I was a part of. I had an apartment in Upper West Side that were going ballistic and they hired Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, one of the most prestigious law firms in the world fight for him and they got the it removed and went to another place and you and and everyone ran right into it and it was true that these all of a sudden these west side upper west side liberals became screaming property rights guys and this and that but their argument the optics didn't change the argument that's right that there were places far more suited for it than in an area right by a school, right by kids. Upper West Side is a, a fam. There's a lot of families now. By the way, it's New York, so they have one to two kids, hmm. not three to four kids, like <laughs> in a, like in a Christian neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would meet Bill and Joe as they're walking around with their kid on a Saturday yeah. morning, and it's funny they never had three or four kids. Yeah, Bill and Joe always had one one kid. kid. But th- my point is this: 
I don't really like what we're doing here. And I don't like NIMBYs. But it's a gotcha situation for Steph Curry, and he can't win. Because if he has the right argument, are we supposed to say he's not allowed to make it? No, he's absolutely allowed to make it, but I would ask him to bring his property rights sensibilities here to the rest of his political worldview. I would prefer people do it with an alternative, and that's the hard part, is no one really ever has one. So in Newport Beach, they yeah, we cannot have the homeless here. You go, okay, where should we put one? Or low And then they all go, people. well, we're going to put it in Santa Ana. Yeah. You go, okay, well, we just talked to the folks in Santa Ana. You're not going to believe what they said. They wanted it in Newport. <laughs> and I remember my idea that nobody liked it. We didn't know much about COVID at the time, but they had all these people with COVID from prison and they didn't know mm-hmm, what to do with them. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and no, 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 they weren't, they're from the ships and they needed to place them and they were going to put it at some like detox center type of place in Costa Mesa. And I suggested we put them in prison <laughs> and nobody liked that idea. So, so <laughs> that's a true story. I, um, I remember all this. Yeah. Um, but you do know, you see my point, though? I do. Yes, the argument. Mark Andreessen's not a flaming hypocrite. He's not. No, Mark Andreessen is is trying to make an economic argument. He is, but he's a little bit trapped too because yes. and and the left likes to hit Andreessen far more than Steph Curry for reasons you can totally imagine because he's a libertarian. Mm. Yes, he's, yeah, he's a white yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, but Steph he's Curry, the right guy, white. Oh, guy. I'm sorry. Yeah, also the right guy. Um, he is a libertarian. He's for free markets, and so suddenly he's saying, no, 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 not here and they go crazy. But, you know, his subject line of his email to the city of Atherton uh, says here, Andreessen, 51, and his wife, the philanthropist Laura Ariaga Andreessen, recently submitted public comments to the Atherton Town Council denouncing their plan to greenlight the construction of around 130 multifamily properties in the area. Subject line, immensely against, all caps, multifamily development, the email began. I am writing this letter to communicate our immense, all caps, c- objection to the creation of multifamily overlay zones in Atherton. Please uh, all quotes, I'm sorry, all caps, immediately remove all multifamily overlay zoning housing projects from the element, which will be submitted to the state in July, the couple wrote. Um, th- they will massively decrease our home values, the quality of life of ourselves and our neighbors, and immensely increase, immense is the key word here, uh, increase the noise, pollution, and traffic. This is undeniably true. Um, Andreessen has been all for the arguments we make, which is more supply, more supply, more supply. That does not necessarily mean that you ram it into places where people are already feeling like, you know, they've done their bit, they've worked hard. This is Steph Curry's argument, that he worked hard. He worked hard to get here. He's done so much for himself and his family, and how dare they now lower his property values. Although, I will say- He Kurt, didn't focus on property values. He did not. He, he focused about on safety. safety and privacy. That's right. And And- I think this is a legit argument, man. This is why he lives where he does, so that he can protect his family from looky-loos and, uh, I don't know, uh, guys this with hammers. This is where, like, so I was going to write a book once called There's No Free Lunch. Oh, you know, I did. You did, did, yeah. I remember that. That I just can't stand these conversations with people on the right or left without the first prima facie acknowledgement of trade-offs. We need uh, more housing built, yes. and that is not... See, this is where we have a friend. I guess I shouldn't say his name. It's okay to say it? I, no, okay, we have a friend who's a, a activist and a donor and a very bright guy. I'm not going to say his name. I've known him my whole life, by the way. I've known him since I was about 10 years old. Who's really fired up on this issue. A conservative, a thoughtful mm-hmm. guy. But he's disgusted by nimbyism. Yes. As he should be. Right. But my point is... That that doesn't mean you be because you're anti NIMBY that you be obnoxious like hey we're gonna go put a home right we're gonna go put it right in the middle of the White House you mm-hmm, know like mm-hmm. there are safety considerations school considerations sure. I've struggled with this because uh, I am a founding trustee of a Christian high school in West Newport and there's a lot of industrial space up in the area and over time there has been ideas about putting a homeless shelter. Or uh, low income, right? Because a lot in- of this is low no, income. There's, yeah. the, but the principle can apply to both. Yes. Low income housing, but also particular homeless shelter, which is more controversial and has more health risks with drug addiction and other things going on. And they've talked about wanting to put it up in the area by Pacifica, and I would be against it. It's never really gotten la- uh, uh, um, legs. Yeah, but here's the thing. It's not just our school. There's an elementary school mm-hmm. right nearby called Cardin Hall. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of reasons why it just isn't a sensible area. And it's not me saying I don't want it around. But, like, I can't stand people talking as if 
the solution is to go make someone else mad who right. isn't me. Right. Find sensible solutions and recognize it's not going to be perfect. Yeah. And I don't believe rich people have a right to not have to have, be inconvenienced. And I certainly don't buy the property value argument of like, just if there's something a quarter mile away, it's going to potentially hurt my property value. Is that, that too bad? You know, people should have to follow zoning laws or whatever. We can have an, a disagreement about what those zoning laws should and shouldn't be. But I think that this thing with, uh, I guess we're taking too much time with it. No. I don't like the LA Times trying to catch Steph Curry in a gotcha moment. That's what I'm saying. Um, and I don't like Steph walking into it. Yeah. I, I Look, man. You know I, what I would have done if I'm what Steph? Would, what? If Steph has more money than me. I would have said, I'll build a homeless shelter, or this is low-income housing. I'll build it exactly what you want, anywhere you want that makes sense. Just tell me I'll write the check. Right. I think so this it, is clearly not me trying to do this or this. This is privacy. This is safety. Right. And I'll put my money in my mouth. Yeah. That's what I would have done. Now, they never would have taken him up on it, but he would look so good doing it. Yes, uh, he would. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think you and I have only a subtle, nuanced disagreement on this because I think we're generally in agreement that he's making the right argument. I just do wish that he would apply it to all other areas of life. He has been such an outspoken progressive in every other area until it comes to her. It's like when LeBron was all uh, wigging out about uh, how bad and corrupt the U.S. is. And as soon as there was some concern for Uyghurs in China, he recognized the intersectionality of his own financial interests and Chinese internal policy and recommended that everybody just shut their damn mouths about China. Yeah. Um, it's that kind of shameless huckstering of I got mine and you're not going to get yours and I'm I'm a progressive what's that old saying don't get me wrong there these people are hypocrites all the time yeah. and I'm totally against it I'm only it. saying on this issue it, and by the way if I did more study which I haven't done and I don't think you've been able to do a deep dive we could look at the Atherton solution and go oh I didn't realize that that does make a lot of sense and I don't care about Steph Curry's privacy concerns it's possible but that's not my prima facie guess right and I don't think like I don't want them to be able to use the opportunity to try to embarrass a rich guy as justification for them doing a sloppy job. Where I think it's hysterical they never go is by liberal universities. That's, yeah. So Menlo Park, Palo Alto, they're not $8 million. The, the Palo Alto community is not $8 million uh, for, for the land value like mm-hmm. it would be in Atherton. And, mm-hmm. I, and I just wonder why. Uh, they didn't go want to put this right by Berkeley or right by Stanford. Yeah, because every city under this California plan, every city is required to pick up its quote-unquote burden, to pay its fair share, as the left likes to say. And so the left is going to jump all over Steph Curry because he's rich, but not uh, you know try to avoid anything to do with his blackness or you know other other sort of identifiers. The Within- other thing you may have said earlier, and I was ignoring you, <laughs> I have got to put this on the table. I am 100% for us finding ways to get more permitted housing Yes, uh, to to uh, bring the market and, and reconcile supply and demand into equilibrium. Yeah. That is nothing to do with homelessness. Correct. That's yeah. the biggest lie of all time, that the reason that we have homeless people is because there's not enough houses That's on Laguna right. Beach. Yes. They, they want to... So if we're talking about more supply... Because we um, have artificially hindered supply, which is artificially boosted prices, then I'm all for it. Let's get more supply, and I'm a yimby in that sense. Yeah. But if we're saying we need more housing because it's going to solve for the, the drug addiction and mental health no. that has led to the ho- the homelessness thing, then these people are liars. Well, and they are liars on this. I shouldn't say all they. The you know, there's no monolith over there. It's a bunch of competing interests. But you're right. The fa- and, and I did say something. Something like that when I said, look, it's, it's mental illness is our key problem with homelessness and drug addiction, not just affordability. Affordability is a fraction of the people living on the street. Um, it does account for the fact that a lot of- believe those people that think that? Just, I mean, just intuitively. Like intuitively. Have you never been around a homeless person? You think their problem is that they went and did four showings of the realtor and there just wasn't enough inventory? Yeah. yeah. Will you just stop it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, dear God, do you? Nobody thinks that, do they? In real I, life, I'm being serious. I'm not no, being a partisan. They people who are inexperienced and have no real understanding of the problem have never visited a home that was donated, like an apartment that was donated to a homeless uh, organization, and then watch what happens when you put a crack addict in a new apartment. Um, here's the hint: in one week, it becomes cracked in. 
Uh, in two weeks, it is abandoned as unlivable, and in three weeks, it's you know almost condemned by local county health inspectors. The problem is not a roof. The problem is a floor. These people have fallen through the floor in our system, and housing advocates like those we discussed in the Gavin Newsom case with the care courts, they don't really seem to care. They've got their other project going on, and they are just denying the uh, the obviousness, the evidence of their eyeballs. Hey, let's talk about um, well, kind of a related story in the sense that Steph Curry's a basketball player, and UC Berkeley swim coach Terry McKeever is the winningest swim coach in American swimming history, and that's saying something because American swimming, full disclosure, I was one. Not an Olympic swimmer, not a college caliber NC2A swimmer, but as a competitive swimmer back in the day. And Terry McKeever uh, is a woman who... Uh, a phenomenal swimmer in her own right who became head coach at Berkeley's swim club, uh, Berkeley swim team, rather, and um, recently fired. Fired because there were allegations that she was, get this, bullying her female athletes. Um, mm. What's really fascinating about this, Dave, and we don't need to take a deep dive into this, is that the UC Berkeley did a hired an outside law firm to do an investigation. That outside law firm determined that, yes, indeed, she had bullied people, uh, used language that was offensive with regard to gender and disability and national origin or even race. Um, she denies all of these accusations. And I, I would ask people who have ever competed in sports if they see a correlation between what some people might call bullying and success. It is hard to argue with a woman who perhaps uh, some people considered a bully, but who's also the winningest coach in American history. Uh, Vince Lombardi comes to mind, a name out of the distant past for many people. But I think of a lot of coaches and a lot of athletes who would say, you know what, that was not always comfortable to be on the receiving end of uh, a full dose of the gamma rays from my coaches. Uh, we all get that. Um, but these people who went into the Berkeley Swim program came out of it and say they are permanently damaged, affected for life, and they will never, ever be the same. Um, and so their their parents have come out and celebrated the firing of Terry McKeever. She's going to sue the university, mm-hmm. and she's suing on the grounds of gender discrimination. Ooh. So she's saying that all of this is organized by people who can't stand to see a woman succeed. Mm. Um, which I think is the card you play in a California court. I, I'm not saying it's the morally or ethically the right one. Well, whose side are you on? Uh, the side of God. I know that. Okay. Whose side are you on? Oh, in this case? Yeah. Terry McKeever. The coach. The coach. Okay. I don't get this bullying thing. Pardon? How does your coach bully you? It's uh, by, you know, you have to read and these. Now, are they saying that she hit anyone? No. Put, oh, gosh, no. Just yelled at him. Yelled at him. Mean. Made them feel bad. Yeah, see, I don't want to be a jerk, and I think there's some coaches that are that are verbally all over the top. You yeah, know? but I, I mean, you want the courts in on this? Like, yes, mm. no, I, I, I get it. Um, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. with the lack of limiting principle here. The problem is Terry McKeever's not going to get a job at another major U.S. university or an Olympic program ever again if she doesn't well, fight back. The only thing I'll say is that Mike Leach got fired from Washington, Washington State. Because he was putting guys in a shed, and then, and then they said, and then some parent complained that they're locking up their kid, you know, yeah. and like incarcerating him right. illegally, like Trump at the border. And then he got hired by Mississippi State, and and he was successful there. And then he died, and everyone said he was like their hero, the greatest and they were coach, doing yeah, tributes to him and stuff. Yeah. And they forgot he'd been fired because they said he was like there a was, bully. There was like slavery talk and stuff. Now the wow. funny thing was, it was a white kid who was the one who complained. And his dad was a commentator for ESPN. Uh, and I always wondered if that had anything to do with... No. Uh, but, you, you know, cynic. don't say she'll never get hired because... That's true. You're right. You know, Bobby Knight got fired in Indiana. Throwing and Texas chairs. Tech yeah. picked him up and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, right. there are people out there that want to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, from your lips to God's ears... Um, Here's she uh, McKeever quote filed. I'm reading from a Mercury News story. McKeever filed a formal written complaint to the university on November 28th, accusing the university of discrimination based on gender and being influenced by gender bias toward female coaches. Uh, her attorney charged the allegations against McKeever are clouded by gender bias and the standards female coaches are held to. Mm. Um, as you just pointed out, not true. But uh, this is the card you play, I think, if you're in a California court situation. So um, just a, a fun read, in part because I just love 
competitive swimming, and um, and I think the world of Terry McKeever, the things she has achieved at Berkeley are amazing. And yes, I would have sent my daughter to swim there with her, even knowing all these things. Hey, talk to me about uh, this great piece by our friend Mark Jaffe, former California Policy Center employee. Now works he's worked at Reason. He's now at Cato. Mark lives up. I think it's fair to say this. I don't think Mark would be upset in Northern California. That doesn't uh, single him out too much. Uh, but here's a headline for a recent opinion piece he wrote. SBF may go to prison, but his tax hike measure is still destined for the ballot in California. Um, here's a story. Uh, you know, the, the, the benighted Sam Bankman Freed's uh, been indicted in the Southern District of New York on eight counts of fraud, money laundering and campaign finance violation. But he is qualified uh, because of his financing of the effort. He helped qualify a 2024 state ballot initiative that will carry a tax hike measure funded by uh, by the wealthy. The initiative would increase income taxes by uh, 75 basis points. That's what we call those, right? 0.75% basis points? Yeah. Uh, on personal incomes over $5 million, half of the revenue raised by the measure would fund a new California Institute for Pandemic Prevention because California needs its own. Uh, Public Health Prevention Department, to award grants for research and development of technologies to detect and prevent future pandemics. This is where, again, the state is getting itself involved in something that probably really belongs a little higher up the food chain, but there it is. The remaining half of the money would be split between public health programs. Uh, Just think about all the people with their hands in the pocket here. Public health programs for pandemic preparedness and local education agencies like maybe schools, for improvements to, there it is, school facilities to limit disease transmission. Um, so Mark's Mark's point is like, look, man, and we've talked about this endlessly on the show, but I think Mark makes a good point. Sam Bankman-Fried uses his, his money, which uh, is allegedly uh, ill-gotten, to qualify an initiative to tax millionaires in California. <coughs> Pardon me, good heavens. Um, he may go to jail, but his ballot initiative will qualify in 2024, and it will raise taxes on rich people who are already leaving our state in droves. Mm. Uh, the question is for you, David, do you, do, you, do you sort of follow Mark's logic here? Do you agree with it, rather? Do you think that this will just really accelerate the California exodus uh, if it passes? Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, enough said. So, I, By accelerate, I just want to be careful that those things never mean— um, accelerate in fifth gear. Accelerate in first gear, mm-hmm. second mm-hmm. gear. Like it's a slow drip. Yeah. But yeah. Well, you had said this. You had said, I think, on our last show, in fact, that it takes decades for these things to really reveal themselves. Yeah. And California is like the pot, the frog in slowly boiling water. It's, you know, it's suddenly become so hot that people are hopping out. How many kids do you have, Will? I have four. How many of them live in Orange County or in, in California? One. So. And she's leaving in August. So, so like. Is are you alone in that, or do you know a lot of other people your age with grown kids that have anywhere from fifty to seventy-five to hundred percent of the kids not in the state? It, I, I think it's very common. It's very common, and it's job oriented. It's cost oriented. Yes. There's a lot of factors, but it's a generational thing. It right. didn't happen one day. Yeah, one of my one of my boys. Um, in his third or very early thirties, uh, was offered a job in North Carolina at a salary he was making out here in California. And as he's because he was you know, recruited, and as he says, uh, now I am quote unquote hillbilly rich. My this is my son who really does love hunting and a fishing and has a bass boat, um, but he couldn't do any of that in California. The the in, the salaries he and his wife were making here had them in a, a one bedroom apartment in Huntington Beach. They now own a three bedroom home in North Carolina in Charlotte. Um, and that's the story of all of my kids, you know, seeking greater opportunity elsewhere uh, and lower cost. So, um, yeah, it's a common problem. And I would point out to you know people who think this is not a problem, if 75% of my kids are already out of the state and 100% of them at the end of this coming summer, this is a loss to California. These are people who the state has spent lots of money helping educate. Uh, let me see, three, four of my kids all went to public universities, mm. uh, went to public schools all the way through. And so the state invested all this money in these kids, and now these people are living their most productive years outside the state of California. That's a loss to us, and that's the danger. It's the danger of smart entrepreneurial um, working class, middle class people. Yes, it's a problem when the wealthy leave too because it affects directly our tax revenue and our job creation. Uh, but even at the micro level, this thing hacks away. This state hacks away at the bonds of family and community. I'll just point out the personal, which is 
I'm sad my kids don't live near me. Yeah. You know, I lived near my parents my whole life, um, and that was by design. We yeah. turned down opportunities to leave the state. Um, but you're exactly right. It's middle class, and, and it's um, just made all the more ironic that the blue states that are hauling out the middle class are the ones that have really built a political messaging around defending the middle class for 50 years. Um, that was the argument for unions. It was the argument so for so much of the sort of political messaging and ideology of Democrats was a defense of middle class and the middle class of the people right. primarily leaving blue states. Yep. Uh, hey, how much time do you have? One, one more story? Two minutes. Okay. Let's talk about this headline. California regulators fast track utility bill relief as natural gas prices soar. Everybody knows the, the background in this story about natural gas prices going through the roof and your bills are probably uh, uh, manifesting that problem uh, as the global market in natural gas gets crunched uh, because of a colder winter in part. We're seeing gas natural gas prices spike. No, natural, you look skeptical. Well, natural gas prices are down about 40% year to date, so I'm a little confused by well, I mean, not on the retail side because no, I know, but uh, yeah, that's okay. diff- that's not. I'm saying that that cause and effect is inaccurate. Well, okay, so what is it that's causing our gas prices to go up? I think it has to do with getting from the refinery. It, okay. it's not specific to the underlying natural gas right now. BTU is at two dollars and fifty cents, two dollars and forty eight cents. You're not going to show me a chart and make me read it, are you? Well, I you would, really are. I would be happy to. If you want. <laughs> Does that look like a skyrocketing natural no, gas? No, that looks price like a too? collapsing market yeah. in natural gas. And so why are the retail prices And in August it was at nine dollars and twenty six cents. It's now two dollars and Okay, so it's not the underlying And the reason price. is because the um winter was much warmer than expected nationwide and globally. Huh. These are global commodities. So I have this all wrong. Yeah. Okay, so but again, why are natural gas prices going up if all that natural gas prices aren't going up? You're talking about end user utility. Bills. Yes. And that has to do with supply uh, for utility users in California. Yes. It isolates the problem in California, but it's not related to underlying natural gas prices. Okay. So clearly. what? It, got it. So what's the problem in California? You, you, you would have as good a guess as me. Are you, are you saying that my guess will be right, or are you no. saying that it would just be a good guess? I'm saying it's not related to underlying natural gas prices. Right. So Okay. So let's just look at the story here. The headline is that natural gas prices are soaring, and what they're clearly referring to, what I'm referring to, is on the consumer side in my home, my gas bill is way up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a problem throughout California. My, my here's, the, here's the broader picture that what I wanted to point out was just that California regulators are trying to fast track a $1.3 billion-dollar credit from utilities to consumers to help cover the rising costs of na- of their natural gas bills, their gas bills, right, in their homes and businesses. Uh, so here's the commissioner, <clears throat> Darcy Hauk, I think is the way we pronounce her name. She says, December saw one of the highest natural gas price spikes in recent memory. This volatility is another ex- excellent reminder of the urgent need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels in our homes and energy systems. We expect the utilities to process this relief as expeditiously as possible. David, give me a response to that first, if you would, please. Um, I don't believe that we have anything right in this uh, state uh, as it pertains to energy policy. I don't believe that a woman who – is this a woman? Yes. Well, I think Darcy is. Yeah, I think so. You know, I never know Let's say commissioner. Um, The line you read Mm – which I wasn't critiquing you, I was critiquing her. Mm-hmm. December saw one of the highest natural gas price spikes in recent memory. This price volatility is another excellent reminder of the need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. It's completely, totally untrue. Natural gas prices dropped precipitously in December. So uh, they are taking policy issues, regulatory issues. You did not see skyrocketing natural gas bills everywhere. Um, there's any number of things that could be going on with public utilities in California. Uh, it could be policy problems. It could not be. It could be greedy utility companies. I, I don't believe so since it's so regulated. But my point being that when they start off with the premise that it's from underlying commodity price explosion and commodity prices tanked, they're lying. And when they say that this is an excellent reminder of the urgent need to reduce our reliance on, on fossil, fossil fuels, fuel. yeah, um, that 
seems to me to it's be an just urgent need to have more fossil fuel. That's what I would think. Yeah, because of supply. It, in, yes, increased supply. So meantime, in the last week, we've seen stories like the Biden administration has apparently been negotiated with the Venezuelan government uh, of Maduro, uh, Nicolas Maduro, um, a guy who is sweet guy. Yeah, sweet person. Uh, runs armed militias and death squads throughout uh, the streets of every major city, and uh, just an absolute crackpot. Tin. Tin uh, tin foil hat wearing uh, leftist, um, but the Biden administration is working with this guy to allow the Venezuelans to get back into the global energy market. So long as the first profits go back to U.S. investors, and in a hope that this will help drive down the price, the global prices of oil and uh, of gasoline prices in the United States. That's Biden's bet. Um, but at no point is the Biden administration scramble to replace global energy with California energy by telling Newsom something like it, like, hey, you got to lift the lid on producing more natural gas, more oil, refining more oil. You've got to drop all the crazy regulations that are raising gas prices in California. No, none of that. Um, and in the meantime, of course, California is banning uh, oil, dr- oil drilling uh, within 3,200 feet of schools, parks, jails, businesses open to the public. Public. Um, you know, we have talked about all the obnoxious ways in which this administration and Democratic administrations before have really stepped on the supply pipeline of energy in California, shutting down nuclear power plants at the same time you demand that everybody shift to electric vehicles, um, energy programs that simply don't work in the alternative space. Um, accusations of price gouging and the gasoline uh, by gasoline refiners and, and uh, retailers. So all of this stuff sort of misses the mark in the way that it destroys the economy requires some sort of response. So what the Newsom administration does through the regulatory agencies is demand that we just take ratepayer money or tax money and give it back to people so they can pay. It's the we've talked about it before the self-licking ice cream of uh, ice cream cone of public policy. It's uh, you create a problem, then you create a new solution that makes the problem worse. So you need a new a new solution to that problem and on and on ad nauseum. Amen. All right, brother. We have so much more we could get to, but uh, why don't we just uh, wrap it up here? That's all the time we have today. David, any last words before I go through uh, and say goodbye to everybody? Uh, I'm sorry that your fourth kid is leaving the state as well. I did not know that. He's going to university in Europe. I'll tell you more about it in a moment. Mm. Yeah, me too. Uh, all four kids gone. We're going to have to start taking in foster kids. The parenting instinct in this one is strong. So uh, that's all we've got today. You can always find this podcast on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and far better for us if you subscribe. Now, listen to me, please. Go on the go on the whatever podcast service you use. Find our our podcast. You're listening to it now. Just go there and rate and review the show. Tell people you like us. Tell people you hate us. But tell people why you listen anyway. Email us with your comments and story suggestions. You've got our emails and Twitter handles in the show notes. On behalf of my friend and co-host David Bonson, we give thanks as ever to session producers Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, Glenn Hall, and to all of our friends at National Review, especially National Review podcast producer Sarah Schutte. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks also to Metalachi, the LA-based mariachi metal band for our music. La revolución continua en la semana próxima. 